It's, it just feels like such a different Sunday, I got to tell you. It's just so weird, <laughs> you know. So having said that, it's a really good sermon. And what I want to say is some of you will remember that I have talked about Peter Lord, who is a friend of mine, very good friend, dear friend, who had a very successful, uh, important ministry in Cape Canaveral, Florida. And 30 years, very, very strong ministry throughout the 30 years, a lot of things. God did a lot of things. So at the end of that 30 years, he's done, he's retired, we're at breakfast, I'm talking to him. And I said to him, Peter, you know, 30 years, what'd you do, what would you do differently? He didn't even hesitate. You know, that's the kind of question you'd think about a little bit. He didn't even hesitate. He just immediately said, oh, I know exactly what I would do. He said, for 30 years, 52 times a year, we told people to do something different. And he said, people can't do 52 different things in a year. And they sure can't do 52 different things in a year for 30 years. And he said, I, would, I wouldn't do that again. He said, if I could go back and do it over again, I would do the same. Hi, Doug. How are you doing? Nice to see you. And congratulations. She's pregnant. So we're having a shower for you tomorrow. So, But uh, it's going to be one of those kind of days. Can I just say? Okay. So, But the point is, is that what he was saying was he said, I would go to, I'd have a particular larger theme that I would hit from all kinds of different directions in all kinds of different ways that people heard it so many different ways, so many different times, in so many different ways that bore witness to them that they would actually start understanding it, but even then I wouldn't be done. I would wait until they actually started doing it. And when they started doing it, then I would move on to the next theme that God was doing. Now, that was an interesting thing to hear at the time. And it's really interesting if you'll look back at the last probably five years or more of this church. Because what's been happening as we have gotten better and better at letting the Lord actually direct what happens from Sunday to Sunday. Last week being an example of where I had a certain sermon in mind, the one I'm doing today, and God inserted another sermon altogether, and you'll see it, made a, it makes perfect sense. And the idea is, is that God has been taking this church and taking us on journeys for seasons. And he's been doing it for years. At the beginning of the year, somebody will say something, That'll become a theme for us that we'll work through for, a, for months. And then something else will happen and we'll work through that. And then the fall will happen and we'll work through that. And God has been doing this just for a long time now. We've noted it many, many times. And so I feel like God's doing what Peter said you should do. And it's not the same sermon over and over. It's different angles, different aspects, getting to different parts of us and getting us to really get there. Now, if you had to say, what's the one that we've been doing it would be trust him. Trust him. Over and over. It started with Robert's incredible prayer at the beginning of the year about prayer and that sort of thing. And I thought it was going to be about prayer, but then it pretty quickly morphed into just over and over God was saying, trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me. Now, I want to marry that story about Peter and this whole idea of what God does to another story, which is back when we're at the 173rd campus, and that was an, an older building, and it had a lot of problems. And every time it would rain, not every time, but most times it would rain, a big rainstorm, something in the drainage would break. And it was something different all the time because we'd fix it all the time. And it would break so regularly that I literally had a change of clothes that I just kept at the church to where I could slip on my jeans and another shirt and everything else and go out there and dig around in the mud during a rainstorm to try and figure out what was flooding the church this time and fix it. 
And so I would do that. And Julie, knowing on this particular time that this happened, knowing exactly what the sermon was, she walks in the, the one part of the church while I'm walking in the back door and I'm just drenched to the bone and covered in mud. And she, knowing what the sermon is, and it was like, anyway, but she looks at me and she says, God never lets you preach a sermon that you haven't lived. <laughs> you know? And that is true. I mean, massively true. And I tell you that because I'm going to do a longer introduction. I'm telling you it's long. Shorter sermon. Long introduction. But I, I need to tell you a story. Because I want you to see what happens when you actually do engage the process. Because understand something, just because God's doing something for months doesn't mean it's going to change you. If you handle it casually, if you just handle it as a sermon and move on and don't work on it, don't actually re respond and, and do what God's leading and through the week and so on, then you're not actually going to get the lesson. Well, praise God, I've got a story for you about me actually getting the lesson. And here's how the story goes. Last week, now you gotta, the timing's important here because of what I'm about to talk to you about happened this week. But last week I told you that when Justine did her phenomenal sermon about do you have something that you've sort of segmented away, remember that? And you sort of, you squirreled it away because you just don't know how to deal with it and all that kind of stuff. Now this was when I heard that sermon from her, I was like, I don't have anything like that. I'm an open book. You know, I, I determined that as a pastor, I would live in a glass house and that I would do that vulnerability and transparency because I felt like people might learn something from me making mistakes and doing the right thing and just growing. And so bottom line, I felt like I don't have anything like that. And then the Lord kind of quickened me and he said, yes, you do. And I talked about it last week. And it was this sort of financial cloud <clears throat> that has hung over me most of my adult life. And I say that, <clears throat> and let me do something right here because... I want to show you, for example, two of the major reasons why there's a financial cloud, and I want you to see something. I'm not saying none of this is my fault, because I made decisions and so on, but I do want you to see the nature of the financial cloud, to see that this isn't like, well, you just spend too much money. Okay, so one thing that happened was, is when we had a lot of money, and then I put it all into a business for the Lord, and then it, the company went under. Okay, and this was a thing of faith in the Lord that I was doing, and it went under, and that's, you know, I don't have any issues with that. I'm thankful, but basically, because of the things that God taught me through it and what I've grown in and everything else. But the bottom line is, is that at that point in time, dead broke in seminary, God providing for us miraculously, we ha I had one remaining asset, and it was worth about, I, th I think it sold for, I want to say it sold for about 300000 which is a lot of money. And particularly when you're dead broke, that's a lot of money. Well, I had a tax bill, and the tax bill wasn't really real. It was that the IRS kept charging me fees, kept charging me quarterlies, even after we had closed down. But I didn't have enough money to, find, to get an accountant to go back and to prove that to them. And the IRS, if you've ever dealt with them, you know, if you don't have an accountant and an attorney, they don't care about what you have to say, honestly. I mean... Let's just be clear. It was a very, very bad... And I'll tell you how bad it got. So here's what happens. So what happens is, is that I'm, 
I, I get this 300000 and I'm going, you know, they, you say I owe you some money. I don't, but I got to get an attorney and an accountant, and I got to work this out now, and I'm going to put it together, and we're going to present to you what we actually do owe you, if anything, and then I can pay it and everything else, but I don't really want to leave the money in a bank account, I, you know, and the lady said, no problem whatsoever, no problem. Give it to me. I'll let you do anything you want with it when you figure it out, no matter how long it takes. So I did it. Some of you will remember that years ago, the IRS came up with a very clever idea. And what they were going to start doing was they were going to give a commission to an agent that collected on a big debt. So this agent took that money. Not only by the time that we came back with the lawyer and the attorney, when, when we got back there, she'd figured out how I owed everything that was in that, which I didn't. And... She said, you have no right to reapportion it whatsoever, and she'd, re she'd apportion it in a way that was greatly to the government's favor, a thing that I had told her specifically not to do. I said, don't apply them to 941s. Apply them to 940s. The 941s, I don't know. Well, she applied it all to 941s. It doesn't mean anything to anybody but the accountants, but the 941s were business, and 940s are personal is what it boiled down to. So I ended up having, it should have been, at the most, it should have been 50000 I should have gotten about 250000 As it was, I ended up with no money and, and having a tax lien for about $100,000. And it was completely wrong. Now, about 14 years later, by the way, if you've never had a tax lien before, a federal tax lien, here's one thing that you can't do. Buy a house. Nobody's going to give you a dime because you could be garnished at any time. I can tell you another thing you can't do. You cannot get a credit card. <laughs> you can't get any credit in any way in anything. So for 14 years, we lived with this tax lien over us and no way to pay for anybody to figure it out. And frankly, if you know me, eh, you know, I just lived in it because this is where God has me. It's okay. I'm all right. God help me, right? And frankly, frankly, he did, miraculously provided for us and did all kinds of things. So on balance, I had no complaints even though. But then I get a call after 14 years from a congressional aide, and he says, we're doing an investigation on what happened during the time when they were getting commissions. The lady that took yours built, literally built a swimming pool with the $60,000 she got from you. We understand that maybe that might not have been the right thing. And I said, it wasn't. And I referred him to letters that I had sent to congressmen saying, this is incredibly unfair. You should investigate this. <laughs> this couldn't be more wrong. And the bottom line is he said, yeah, you're one of them. We get it. She lied. You know, nothing we can do about it. We're not going to give you your money back. What do you want? And I said, well, for sure, get rid of the tax lien. And he said, fine, done, no deal. No, no problem. So that's just an example of something. I, you know, it's hard to, I, whether to anyway, I just don't want to take too much credit for that. <laughs> You know what I mean? Now, another thing that I did, and again, I'm not trying to make myself out to be a saint here, but I do need you to understand something in order to understand the story. And I'm going to tell you one more thing. We worked at the church here, and when we first came to the church, we came to the church for a $30,000 a year salary. That was about half of what it took to live here at that time for a family of four. But we just trusted God, because that's what we do. We said, this is where God wants us. He'll provide for us. We went, and he did. He provided for us. 
But one of the things that happened, some people were on council, so you remember this, but one thing that happened was is every once in a while the council would say, geez, you know, you probably should get a raise and we should probably do something. And my response was, for about 12 years, was, I, you know, I, God, take care, God takes care of me. Don't worry about the raise. We need a youth pastor. We need a worship pastor. We need another assistant. We need, and I always took the money that they were thinking about giving to me and gave it to somebody else, okay? Now, what that did was, is when the, when the tax lien finally went away, which is while we were living here, we thought, geez, we should try and go out and buy a house. And the problem was, is that because we hadn't been getting raises for several years, we, our income didn't qualify, for anything. Plus, we had this tax lien and this weird credit situation, so we couldn't buy a house then. Now, shortly after that, this is God's provision now, right? So I'm just, oh, well, whatever, and we're still renting. And then God, you know, the, the economy collapses, and, and we're empty nested, and we go downtown. I really like living downtown. I like being able to walk places and do that kind of thing. So we go downtown, and the rents are like super cheap because there's all these big, tall buildings that just got built, and nobody living in them. So like we got in super cheap, and we lived there really, really cheap for a few years, and then we ended up finding your old landlord because the Fishers were lived, literally lived on the same uh, floor as us for one year, and, and when they were moving out, we thought, well, hey, let's see, and we went to her, and we got to be fabulous friends with this gal. I mean, really the nicest person. And she did something for us for years, for at least five, six years now. And what she did was is she said, you guys cannot possibly afford to live here uh, at the rates that people charge for these kinds of places. So I'm just going to do you solid, and I'm not going to, you know, I'll raise your rent like 100 bucks or 200 bucks or something every once in a while. But it was like we just got, as rents were going up, ours was going up, but just very little. And so we just, now in a certain sense, we got further and further behind, but we were able to live in a very nice, beautiful place downtown where we could walk and enjoy each other after long, hard days. And we absolutely love where we live. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that everything is, everything I ever made in all my financial decisions were hunky-dory and perfect or anything else. I am going to tell you, if you look at my books, and I have literally put my books on the screen before in the church. Julie hated it. But I'm, I'm, I wouldn't, frugal would not be the right word. I'm not frugal. But I'm careful. I am careful. And I can tell you the only debt that we have comes from two places. One is the decisions that we made relative to the church, and the other one is decisions I made relative to my kids. Now, other people didn't make those decisions with their kids, and I'm not saying that what I did was right. I'm absolutely not saying that. I'm just saying it's what I did. And because of that, we are sitting right now in a perfect storm. Because if you've noticed, housing prices have gone up rather dramatically in the last two or three years. So there's that. The other thing is, is that because of something I did a couple of years ago for my kids, we ended up where I'm paying back over a period of time, but for about three or four years here, my credit is, usually I'm in the 800s. That's where I've almost always been But once I got out of the tax lien. But I was in the 800s, and that's good credit rating. But because I'm paying back some debt from weddings and so on, I'm not there now. I'm in a place where it's tougher to get a mortgage. So I've been sort of, so two weeks ago when Justine does her sermon, I feel like God tells me, because, you know, I want you to see something. I've always trusted God. 
I was really doing that. I was not freaking out and doing stuff that I felt like would be good for me. I was just trusting God. And the fact is, God miraculously provided for us income-wise for 10 years, and he gave us a beautiful place to live for another 10 years. So it's hard to argue with that fruit. However, you could still argue with me about lots of things. Having said that, the, the point that happens is, is that two weeks ago, the Lord says, you've got something over here that I need you to bring front and center in Justine's sermon. And I was surprised, but I did it. And then last week, we literally, I literally said, bring that thing front and center and write down on a piece of paper what that thing is and put it in the wall. Remember? That's what we did last week. And mine was this financial cloud. I just could tell that God was putting my attention and my focus on it. He knows that I trusted him, but I was supposed to focus on it for a moment. And so here I am focusing on it, and I get a call on Monday. And you probably can guess what the call was. And she could not have been more apologetic about it, but my landlord said, I just, we just really feel like we need to sell, and so we're going to sell. Now, for two weeks... I have been thinking about this, and I've been saying in my head, boy, I really hope nothing happens right now because there's this perfect storm of events right now with housing prices, with interest rates just ticked up majorly and are about to again on Tuesday when the Fed meets. So interest rates are up, housing prices are up. Uh, my credit is not in a good place, and we don't have savings to speak of. We have a 401k that I can get some money from and so on, but that's it, right? And so I'm, I'm, I'm looking at that for the last two weeks before the landlord calls, and I'm kind of saying, I just don't know what we would do if we weren't living here. Because I've looked around. I looked at some real estate and so on, and it's very, I'm not trying to live in something opulent. By the way, let me say something really clearly, just in case anybody should misunderstand something. Number one, God owes me nothing. I could not make this more clear. If God never did one more good thing for me for the rest of my life, my balance sheet is so in favor of the blessings that God has poured out on me that it would be criminal, it would be indefensible for me to think that God owed me anything. And the second thing is, and I think this is super important for us, this is a lot what we're doing right now. God does not owe me the standard of living to which I would like to be. Lots of people live in houses that they don't like, or condos, or whatever. That happens. God does not owe you, uh, you know, what you want. But here's the thing that has been happening with me, and this is true of me for my whole life, but it's an ongoing journey. And what the Lord has been doing with me is he's really been bringing it home to me and saying, and just making, making it real in my heart, that no matter what I want, what he brings me is better. Every time. It may not be what I want, and I may not see why it's better for me. But it doesn't matter. He's a good God, and he's doing a good thing for somebody that he loves. And if I don't see it, it doesn't matter. But if I don't live it, it's on me. Because he's given me every reason to believe him and to trust him. Right? So that should be clear. So I want to say something. I'm not looking to live in the Taj Mahal. And I'm not looking to live even where the standard of living that we have lived. If we can, great. Thank you, God. If we can't, so what? Right? Now, that'll be difficult emotionally and physically and flesh-wise. But nonetheless, put your flesh down. 
right? So the point is, is the problem is, is that for the last two weeks, before I got this call, I'd been looking at real estate, and I'd been looking at rents, and I'd been looking, and literally what I was coming up with is, if we were to, if we were to try and rent, we're at least 30 to 45 minutes. Now, that's not a problem. A lot of people commute in that far from here. For me, being a pastor here, I like to live in the community in which I pastor, but not only that, but we're at the church a lot. I'm not so much anymore, but Julia's all the time. And it's nice to be able to live close by to where you can run home and you know, and not have an hour-long commute during rush hour and all that kind of stuff. But again, if that happens, it happens. It happens to a lot of people. So what, right? But it looks like we're just to, if we were to rent, we're probably 30, 45 minutes away. And if we're to buy, we're almost certainly an hour if, if we can get financed. So I'm sort of sitting there going, wow, you know, and then all of a sudden I get this call. Now, all of this is already in my head, and I get this call from this lady who's just apologizing profusely for what she's doing, and I'm going, geez, you know, it totally makes sense to me, you know. The only argument I can give her is, is hold on to it. It's just going to, you know, she's already well off, and I'm going to say, it's just going to make you a lot more money because prices are just skyrocketing where we live. And so that would be my only argument for her to keep it, but either way, you know, I'm not in it. So, but the point is, and I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to, I can tell you the first, when she first started talking to me, my heart just sank. Now, let me say something, okay? I think a lot of your hearts would sink if you found out, if you knew that you had a problem, and then you found out the problem that you had was coming on you, and it had to do with where you live, (laughs) right? That tends to be something that's fairly important to us, usually. And so I think a lot of people, if they found out that they were literally going to have to change their life in major ways, in a sudden moment, it's not unnatural for your heart to sink (laughs) and for you to kind of go, bummer, you know, thanks God for what you've done up to now, but, you know, okay, whatever, and just to have that moment, right? But here's what I want to tell you, and here's the cool, here's the reason I'm telling this overly long story. Here's what happened. My heart sunk, and immediately a thought came into my mind. What I've been saying for months, you do not know what is going to happen. But if you embrace the journey of what God's preparing you for, when it does, you're going to trust him. And guess what happened with me? My initial reaction was my heart sinking, and the next thought I had, you're doing something good. I don't mean according to my flesh. I may have to really work on putting that down somehow. But I know that you're doing something good. Now, can I just say something? There's a lot of people that are in much worse situation than I am. Mine's bad, but it's not the end of the world. Some people are in life and death struggles and other people are in other things. And I said last week, I said, it seems like almost everybody right now is going through something that has this sort of large emotional component to it in us, this large thing that we're not sure what to do about. And here's what I want to tell you. If you listen to what God's telling us, if you engage what he's showing us, if you make it part of your life, not just hear but do, 
if you make these things that God is doing part of your life, I can tell you now that your response will be something you can be proud of, something you can be happy about, something that is more true than anything that might go off in your flesh. So I say this story as a testimony to thank God. I really believe that he's going to do something here which is going to help us in ways that I might not like. I get that. I have that in my heart. And if it happens, great. If it doesn't happen, even better. <laughs> but do you get the point? Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious, I'm going to pray today. I know we had John Woodbury praying, but I, John, I really felt like I needed to today. So Lord, in Jesus' name, I'm just going to just lift you up right now. And first of all, I just want to say thank you. I want to thank you that you care for us. I want to thank you that you hold us. I want to thank you for the way that you are orchestrating things beforehand in ways that are phenomenal. In Jesus' holy and precious name, dear God, thank you that you hold us, that you own us, that it's your will that's being done in our life and that you get us out of the way. Any degree that we resist you, any degree that we take another path, God, kill it. And just bring us right into harmony with what you're doing. Because it is my belief, my strong belief, that you are doing something important. And although this story is not that big, you are doing something that is even larger, that is important. And so we say to you, amen, which is so be it. Don't make us just hearers, make us doers. Make us the kind of people that will live in trust, in love with you. Amen? Amen. Well, like I say, shorter sermon. Jesus is done with his public ministry. This is, this is the day of, the next day Jesus dies. Um, the festival of unleavened bread arrived. When the Passover lamb is sacrificed, Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, go and prepare the Passover meal so we can eat it together. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked him. He replied, as soon as you enter Jerusalem, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. At the house he enters, say the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He'll take you upstairs to a large room that's already set up. That is where you should prepare our meal. They went off to the city to, and found everything just as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. Now, I want you to see there's two ways of looking at that story and then gradations between them. One way is nothing miraculous here. Jesus, who was preaching in the city, met a man, talked to him about the fact that he had a place for Passover, had arranged to do that, and then arranged for another man to be waiting at a certain time with a jar of water when the guys came in to take him to the house. You can look at this story without any miracle in it. It's interesting, therefore, and I'm, I'm saying that for real, but it's interesting that almost every commentator will tell you, well, you can read it that way. That's not the truth. That the inference is not just by this telling, but by other tellings and by other things that happened with the donkey and the colt and by other things that took place, <coughs> that this is actually an instance of a miraculous thing taking place. 
a guy that just happens to be walking. Oh, thank you. That was really nice of you. A guy that just happened to be walking by at a certain time. You're to follow him. When you get there, say something to this guy. Somehow he'll know what to do. There'll be a house already furnished and ready for you. Right? All you have to do is prepare the meal. And most commentators will say that the feel and the nuance, that the subtlety, that the, that the thing that is happening right now with the disciples is that. See it? Now, I want to say something. Whether you take the first way of looking at it, which is that Jesus had gone ahead and orchestrated things and they didn't know about it, or whether it is that something miraculous happened, that they were participating and watching a miracle unfold, the truth is, in both instances, it's the same lesson for the disciples. They did not know what was going to happen, but Jesus went before them and orchestrated it all. So that all they had to do was walk into it. That's the lesson. Jesus had gone before the disciples, prepared things for them which they didn't even know were going to happen. That's the lesson either way. One, the miracle way gets it even more so, but the other way does this. Now, here's why that's super important. The disciples still don't get that Jesus is going to die. And right now they're experiencing something where Jesus has orchestrated things for them. Now, I want you to think about something. These guys are, they're not all fishermen, but for the most part, let's just call them fishermen to keep it simple. Here's the truth about a fisherman living in Israel in that day. If at some point in your life you traveled over 100 miles away from where you were born, that was very unusual. Simon Bar-Jonah means Simon the son of Jonah. You know why they could say it that way? Because Simon and Jonah and everybody else lived in one town. And when they were saying, this is, Simon, this, is Bar, this is Jonah's kid, Simon. So his name is Simon Bar Jonah. See it? Because everybody lived in the same town. You didn't travel. You didn't, you didn't go on vacation to, you know, Tahiti. <laughs> this didn't happen. You didn't, you didn't go anywhere. Let's be clear. There were people, Roman roads were being built throughout the empire, and Roman roads were great roads, but what were they for? Number one, they were so that soldiers could get to places quickly and quash insurrections. Number two, those Roman roads were built to facilitate trade, by which we mean primarily the Romans getting the goods from those foreign lands that they'd taken over back to Rome. So there were good roads, but you didn't travel them as just a traveler because tradesmen were traveling that route and there were bandits everywhere. Tradesmen's traveled with guards, and armies are their own guards. The people that were traveling distances, particularly outside of their own geographic region, outside of where they lived and were comfortable in their culture, the people that were doing that were rough people that could withstand the, the, the roughness of what this whole thing was about, the roughness of the travel itself, the roughness of what might happen to you in the travels, the whole thing. You, you know, we, I hop in the car and drive to Jackson Hole, and I never once think about being robbed. <laughs> I never once think about whether or not I'm going to get there. I, you know, it just doesn't happen. We just, we, we literally hop in a plane and fly to Florida because we want to go to Disney World. This is a very different, it's impossible for us to really get into the mentality that these people lived in. 
And here, let me tell you one more thing that they didn't do. You sure didn't travel for religious reasons. At this point in time, in China, there are monks. And the monks travel in packs, but they don't go out into the world. They travel inside of places where people know them and can support them and are there protected. They don't travel throughout the world. This does not happen. And I could go on and on about that, but let me just point out, let me just show you something, what God did with these fishermen. Here's where they went. Look at this. You got Joseph going up to England. You got Thomas going over here to India. Some of these, we're not entirely certain. The purple ones are the ones that are possible and have, have enough history to put the, the line in. The blue ones are probable. There's a lot of evidence that this is what actually happened. But can you see this? Look at this. We got James traveling over to Spain and France. We got Luke going up here. We got John going over here. Philip going over here. Most of the apostles never even died in Israel. They died out there in the world doing something. Did you just realize there were no such thing as missionaries? They didn't exist in the world. <laughs> it was Paul that started going out and doing missionary stuff. And then eventually the disciples got it and they started going out too. How did they get there? Because let's be clear about one thing. I'm going to say something overstating it. The disciples were scaredy cats. Then Jesus said to them, tonight all of you will run away. He's talking right now at the Passover meal. He's saying, look, I'm going to get arrested and struck, as I've said to you. You should, at least, you should trust me that I said I'm going to get arrested, I'm going to die, but then I'm going to rise again. So trust me. How many miracles had they seen by this time? How many things had they seen that God had orchestrated that they knew nothing about? Do you see this? Over and over and over, they had every reason to know and to trust and to not run away when Jesus got arrested. But what did they all do? They all ran away. But here's what's key. As was said about them. By the way, when God prophesies something, it's not that he's saying, you will do this, I'm going to make you do this. Here's how prophecy works. I know what you're going to do, and I'm just telling you you're going to do it in advance so that when you do it, you'll know that somebody said you were going to do it. So he says it this way. It is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. See it? And he was saying, you're all going to scatter. Should they have scattered? I mean, let's be really clear. Should they have? Absolutely not. They, they had watched Jesus raise people from the dead. And yet when he gets arrested, they freak and bolt. <laughs> what? What? And yet, at some point in time, they did this. What changed them from guys who would bolt to guys who went out? Yeah, but let's just take it. Watch what he does. Watch his progression here. The first thing that he does is he tells them what's going to happen. Now, here's the key when Jesus tells the disciples what's going to happen. They don't get it. <laughs> if it comports with what they think is going to happen, they listen and they hear and they understand. They don't really understand. If it's something that they don't get, 
then they just don't seem to hear it at all. How many times did Jesus tell them, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to die, and I'm going to raise again? He said it over and over and over. None of them got it. So he tells you what's going to happen. But then he does something else. He prepares you. And he prepares you for stuff that you don't even know is going to happen. It's not just he's saying, this is going to happen and you get this. And the, uh, it, what he's doing is he's saying, you don't get it, but I'm preparing you for it. You see how important it is for us to participate in his preparation? Because if we don't, when it happens, we don't get it. And what do we do? We bolt. See it? If you don't enter into what he's doing, you don't get it and you don't react the way that you'd want to the way that you have every reason to. And so here's where it gets so cool. How in control is God? Then knowing that they will mess up and fail, <laughs> he takes the mess up and makes that be the deeper reason why they trust. Think about it. The disciples have been told he's going to die and resurrect. He dies, they bolt. They've been told that they're going to scatter. He dies and, and resurrects. Now they're sitting with Jesus, having bolted, <laughs> despite him telling him, and despite many other things that he gave them for reasons why they shouldn't have bolted. Right? Why they should have understood. And so they have not only that Jesus rose again and that he was really in control of Passover suppers and death and resurrection itself, that he was in control of everything at all times in every way. But they have their failure to trust that. And you know what? Failure is a good teacher. When you fail... And you come back and you sit in front of him and you're like, that's when it goes into your heart and you go, I'm not going to do that again. He just demonstrated to me and my failure makes it so clear to me that he's in control, that I didn't trust that. And so I did something for which I'm embarrassed and that made me miss the moment. But it's okay because God's big enough to even bring that back in in a way that causes you to become the kind of person who will go out to the whole world. <laughs> you see this? God is so in control. He's so amazing. His plans are so incredible. Uh, this is a real sidebar right here. At the, in the announcements, we said we're praying for people for Easter. We're just a few weeks away from Easter. We're praying people for Easter. So let me just apply this to one small thing and then we're going to go back big again. But let me apply it to the person that you're praying for. You know, God sent these people all over the world. Where is he sending you? You think maybe God is wanting to get us to trust him in part so much that we actually go to our friends, our family, our coworkers, our neighbors, the people we meet. You know, in a very real way, here's what most people reply to this. Send me to Mexico, I'll tell everybody about God. 
Send me to my workplace? I don't think so. <laughs> Send me to my friends? Can he be trusted or not? Simple as that. Can he be trusted or not? If you trust him, what happens? You get to be part of a miracle. Not watching from the outside something you could have been involved in and going, crap. <laughs> could have been involved in that. You get to be in it as he does his work through your hands and feet and heart. Right? Do you think maybe what God's trying to get us to do this whole time is trust him more? No matter how much you trust him, can you see how he's trying to get us to just continue to move down a journey where we trust him with everything, even the stuff we've segmented out? Bring it all before me, lay it out before me, and let me arrange it in the way that I know is best for you. We're two, three weeks from Easter. Three weeks for right now. Easter is the moment that everybody's brought into a deeper understanding of who he really is and how much we can trust him. And the thing that God's trying to get us in our heads right now is this. I've been orchestrating everything from the very beginning. Let me show you one instance of where God has orchestrated everything. In chapter 3 of the Bible, we have God having created the heavens and the earth, God having created human beings, God giving those human beings genuine free choice you made of every tree, but also saying, but don't eat of that one because if you do, you're going to die. Be separated from me. It's going to bring death in to what I made, which is life. I'm the, I'm the river of living life. I'm life, and there's going to be death now. Now what do we do? Well, we eat, and then what happens? Oh, my God, we're naked, so we start to hide. <laughs> Jesus, God comes in the garden. He's walking, and he says, where are you? Well, we're hiding because we're naked. Who told you you were naked? The guy, oh, come on, guys. It's just a bunch of guys here mostly today. She made me do it. <laughs> right? Oh, come on. Give it a break. Right? No, you both. Right? But now look what happens. And this is almost where you could just miss it reading it. So many things of God you can just miss. The Lord God made clothing from animal skins from Adam's wife. Where do you get the animal skins? You know, some people say there's no death, like no animals even died in the garden. I don't know if that's true or not. I have no idea. There's no way to prove it one way or the other, so I don't know. But I can tell you what he didn't do. Even if animals did die, he didn't go find some old rotting corpse and pull a skin off of it and give it to them. God went out and killed an animal the first time that had been done. He went out and killed an animal and skinned it, shed its blood and skinned it and put it on them as a covering. This is chapter three. And you realize that that's setting up what the whole of the rest of the Bible is about, what the whole of the rest of humankind is about. The next step in an orchestrated thing that God does is what? Passover. A time when the Israelites are in bondage to the Egyptians 
what happens is that nine plagues have come. The Egyptians have not got it, so God says this is the one they're going to get. I'm going to bring in uh, the angel of death, and he's going to kill every firstborn animal and child in all of Egypt. But what are we to do? He tells the Israelites this, from the evening of the 14th day of the first month, slaughter the lamb at twilight. Slaughter the lamb you chose. It could be a goat too if you were poor. They are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and the top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. On the night that I pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal of the land of Egypt, I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt for I am the Lord. I'm more than their gods. They're not gods at all, in fact. But the blood of your doorpost will serve as a sign marking the houses where you are saying, staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's how we get the word Passover from. The plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, do you see how that's the garden? What's he doing? Again, an innocent animal is being slain. Its blood is being posted over you as a covering so that death passes over. So that's in Genesis and that's in Passover. But of course, in both instances, there's an innocent animal being killed. And as God says many times, in the end, this, the forgiveness of sins for a human being has to be from a man dying. The death of an innocent animal only put the sin off for another year, looking forward to a sacrifice that could, in fact, take all of it. And what's that? Right? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, whose blood covers you and death passes over you. You have been forgiven. Do you see this? From, from, <laughs> from Genesis to the whole story of the Israelite people, the very beginning of them becoming a nation, to Jesus, God has been in perfect control of all of human history. And I want you to do something now. I'm just a little bit, I'm not too far off on time, but I'm a little bit off on time. No, two seconds, just two seconds. I'm not gonna take the microphones or do anything. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to, I want you to just speak to what other things happened right around this period of his death and resurrection that are fulfillments of things that would help us to see that he's in control. He prophesied it, he's in control, he's got it. What other things are fulfilled during Easter? Just, just name them out. Let me give you an example just, just in case. You know it's prophesied that the betrayal price for Jesus would be 30 pieces of silver. This is said before hundreds of years before there even is a Jesus. But that his price would be 30 pieces of silver. And moreover, that that silver, that the person that got it would give it back and that they would end up buying a potter's field with it and that the guts of the person that betrayed him would be splayed out in that potter's field. Does that give you some sense that maybe God's in control? How did Jesus orchestrate that one non-miraculously? <laughs> what else is there? Just, just call out a couple. No broken bones. Perfect. What else? Three times you'll deny me. Perfect. What else? 
What's that? Exactly right. The garments. What else? That the apostles would scatter. What else? Oh, the gall to drink on the cross. Exactly. What else? Yeah. Here's, here's what's happening right here. Do we have reason to trust God? We're saying it. <laughs> I know that God's in control because I saw this and he, he prophesied this in ways that cannot be explained by anything other than a miracle. It was genuine prophetic. We have we have manuscripts that have these prophecies in them before Jesus was ever born, hundreds of years before him. And then we see they're fulfilled in Christ. You can't orchestrate this stuff. <laughs> you couldn't like put it together. Maybe two or three things you could. But most of these things are way outside your control. Jesus was dead when his bones were broken. <laughs> How did he orchestrate that one? You see it? So do we have reason to trust him? Let me give you just quickly, watch this. This is only 28, and there's many more just in this last 24-hour period. This is 24 prophecies filled in the crucifixion day alone. Just real quickly. The serpent would bruise the heel of the woman. Remember that? That's from Genesis. The serpent's going to bruise your heel, but he's going to crush your head. That's exactly what's happening here. The Messiah would be cut off, but not for himself. David prophesied that. The betrayal of Jesus by Judah, foretold by David. Jesus Christ would be forsaken by his disciples, as prophesied by Zechariah. The price of the betrayal, 30 pieces of silver, also foretold by Zechariah. Zechariah also foretold that money would go to buy a potter's field. Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be sacrificed as the Passover lamb of God. Isaiah also prophesied, by the way, it happens right in Passover. The reason why they have to cut him down is because of Passover. Isaiah prophesied the scourging and mocking that he would suffer. Both Isaiah and David prophesied that Jesus' body would be mutilated. David prophesied the shame and dishonor that Jesus would suffer being condemned as a criminal, having done nothing wrong, not one thing ever. Nothing. Didn't shoplift when he was young. Nothing ever. And he gets martyred and he gets killed as a criminal. David also foretold the false witness would testify against Christ, which they did. Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would not make an effort to defend himself at the trial, which he did not. Isaiah foretold Jesus Christ's crucifixion as the sin offering for the world. Isaiah also prophesied that he'd be crucified with criminals. Remember, there were two actual criminals with him. David prophesied that his hands and feet would be pierced. You do realize in David's time, that's not how you killed a person. You didn't pierce their feet or their hands. Crucifixion was a modern invention. The division of his garments among the guards and casting lots for his cloak is prophesied by David. In another psalm, David prophesied they would give him vinegar to drink, the gall, but that he would refuse to dull the pain. But he said no. David also prophesied he'd be watching Jesus, who would be, that many would be watching Jesus during the crucifixion. That wasn't necessarily always the case. Among those who would be Jesus' family and friends, most of those watching were judging him, thinking that he was a criminal. Even the words of his reproachers were prophesied by David because they said, he trusted in God, let God take him down. <laughs> Just as was prophesied. You'd think the people that did all this stuff and the religious leaders over and over literally fulfilling words that were said that they had studied their whole life, you'd think at some point in the time they would say, 
you know, there's something about the Christ being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Let's make it 31 for Judas. Right? Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would make intercession for the sinners, which he did, saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not understand what they are doing. David prophesied that Christ would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Zechariah prophesied that his side would be pierced with a spear. That was not normal. In fact, of the three criminals there, only one of them had that happen because he was already dead, Jesus. The other two were not dead yet, and they had their bones broken so that they would hang worse, so that they would die more quickly, so they could cut them down before Passover. But Jesus, they, he was already dead, and they said, well, make sure, so they pierce him, but don't break his bones. David prophesied Jesus' last words, it is finished. No, now listen to this, look at the typology. No bone in the Passover lamb is to be broken. And of course, no bone is broken in Jesus, which again is, like I say, of the three people up there, and you know, normally they would just hang there until they finally died, but this was unusual because of Passover. His burial in the tomb of a rich man was foretold by Isaiah. Now that's just 28, and we can go deeper. Some people got even more of them that aren't even on this list. But let's just do something. Can we trust God? Bottom line, at some point in time, do you realize I love you? But do you realize that this is going to be tested? And not just for the heck of it. In a real thing, in a consequential manner, at some point in time, whether or not you trust God is going to become clear. Can we trust him? I've just given you 28 reasons to trust him. In fact, in all the Bible, there's over 350 350 things said about Jesus Christ. And he fulfills every single one. The odds of that happening are greater than the number of atoms in the universe. Can you trust him? We're all Christians here. We love God. Here's what I think the Lord is trying to say. Real simple. This is not a joke. It's not casual. It's going to mean something. If you get it right when you suddenly lose your home, you're more likely to get it right when the stakes are much higher. If you can't even get it right when you suddenly lose your home, how are you going to do? Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, I'm asking you to literally drill this down into our hearts. I'm asking you, God, that like you did with the disciples, that where we do not get it, that you would continue to, as the song said in the beginning, the perfect song for this sermon. Oh, the never-ending, reckless love of God, fighting till I am found. God, we would come to you and say, would you please fight for me until I get it? And even when I get it, would you then hold me? Because I'm still prone to fail. 
I do not live in the propensity to fail. I know that I do, and I confess it to you because I say that the reason why I am held and the reason why I stay strong in you is not because of me, it's because of you. But when I say that I do not lay down the responsibility, the opportunity that you have given me to learn who you are and what you do and why I should. And so in Jesus' holy and most magnificent name, we come to you, I come to you right now, and I say in Jesus' name, get me right. Right.